Uh, Exodus happens to be my uh, favorite book of the Bible, so I might get a little bit excited this evening. And I got a little bit excited this morning, Danny told me. And uh, sometimes, sometimes I surprise even myself when I'm preaching. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, part of the reason we're, we're uh, doing this series on, on the Sunday nights when we gather comes partly out of a conviction that I have about, uh, about Scripture and, and I think a conviction uh, about Scripture that most of our church shares. And that comes from 2 Timothy 3.16 when Paul says to the young minister Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Church, how much of Scripture is breathed out by God? All of it. All of it. All 66 books of Scripture is breathed out by God, is, has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we do well to desire to know all of God's Word and to grow in all of God's Word. That includes the Old Testament. Uh, there's much that is there for us that... that uh, is edifying to us as the church. Much in the Old Testament, all of it, in fact, points to, leads us to Christ. And so that is our goal tonight, as it was a couple weeks, a couple months ago when we were in Genesis, is to see Christ uh, in the book of Exodus. How the book of Exodus is pointing to Christ, is leading us to Christ, is uh, preparing the people of Israel in the Old Testament for the Messiah, for Jesus. Um, and, and how better just to understand God's Word, have a better grasp of it. So that said, let's, let's go ahead and get started because we have much ground to cover. You should have a, uh, hopefully a little bifold uh, note sheet uh, there for you, and I encourage you to, uh, to fill in the blanks as we go along. And as usual, if you miss a blank tonight, I will give it to you for a small fee. Um, and uh, I haven't charged anyone that fee yet, but, uh, but it might be there, I don't know. Um, but anyway, so as we, as we go, try to fill in those blanks. And if you miss one, catch me later and I'll, I'll make sure that you get it, <clears throat> get it filled out. Uh, before we do that, let me just pray for our time uh, here that, uh, that God would, would bless it and be in it. Father, we are grateful for your word to us. All 66 books of scripture that you, through the Holy Spirit, have inspired men to write. God, your word, which is to us in language that we can understand, God, that is a blessing that, that you have spoken to us, not, uh, not as a God of, of confusion or, or a God who cannot be understood, but as a God who desires and who longs to be understood by his people. And so we thank you for giving us, giving us your word in this way. I pray, God, that your hand would just be upon our, our time of study tonight in the book of Exodus, that we would see your sovereignty, your presence throughout the book of Exodus, and that, God, we would see the connections that are there, uh, that, that have always been there to, to guide, to prepare, to lead your people Israel in their day to Christ, and, God, things that we can see and look at in the Old Testament in Exodus uh, and see as they point to Christ and give you uh, glory for what you have done for us in sending your Son. Sending your Son to live the, the perfect life that we cannot live, to die on the cross in our place, be raised from the dead, that we might have uh, salvation, that we might be redeemed from an altogether worse kind of slavery than that uh, which the Israelites, the Hebrews, experienced 
prior to the Exodus. God, your hand be on this time tonight. Give me only the words that you would have me to speak. And I pray, God, that the church, that your church would be edified in our time of study tonight. Help us to be efficient and expedient, um, and yet, uh, God, to, to not to be uh, neglectful of your word uh, this evening. So your will be done. You be glorified in this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us deal first with the sort of uh, perfunctory uh, uh, kind of logistical things of regarding Exodus. First, the author of Exodus. It's unstated in the book itself, but traditionally and in the course of Scripture, it's under, understood to be Moses, right? In, in the New Testament and other places in the Old Testament, you often hear Scripture referred to as Moses and the prophets or the law and the prophets. Uh, Moses and the prophets, the, the, just that term Moses refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The date of the writing of Exodus, same as that of Genesis, was probably sometime between 1400 and 1200 B.C. And that just depends on the date of the Exodus. There are some scholars who prefer an earlier date for the Exodus, around 1400 years B.C., some that prefer a late date of the Exodus, 1200 years B.C. Both arguments have merit. There's archaeological and biblical evidence for for uh, both datings, and, and that's not to say that one or the other is right or, or wrong. I mean, one of them is ultimately correct, but for the sake of our purpose, of, of study tonight, it's not really that big of a deal. The, the date of the Exodus is not so important for understanding what is going on in Exodus. Most likely, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for those 40 years. He had a lot of time on his hands, and so he got to work. Exodus is the second book of the Torah, of Pentateuch. Torah is that Hebrew word for law or instruction. And while Exodus tells the story of Israel's liberation from slavery, it also serves as a foreshadowing of redemption from sin. God is a redeemer, and He redeems Israel from slavery. So also does He redeem in a better way any who trust in Jesus from their slavery to sin. Exodus is a true story of true events, uh, but it's a story of events that acts as a type or as a foreshadowing for, uh, for the real thing, for the better thing, which is Christ and our deliverance from sin through him. If I had to summarize Exodus just in a few sentences, you have this in your guide, I would say this. In Exodus, Moses is telling the story of the Lord's work among the nation of Israel, but in such a way as to show the all-encompassing sovereignty and faithful presence of Yahweh among his people. Yahweh is the personal name of God or the closest pronunciation of his personal name that we can, that we can estimate from Scripture. Moses is not the hero of the story, church. God is. There have been two really good films that, that Hollywood has produced, one being The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, which airs on ABC every Easter, I think. And, uh, and it's great, okay? Ten Commandments, great movie uh, and, and fun to watch. It's epic, and it's, it's Hollywood in all of Hollywood's like, best fashion. Right? And then there's a DreamWorks uh, animated picture called The Prince of Egypt, which came out, I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s, something like that. And, uh, and I enjoy that one as well. But the problem with both The Ten Commandments and The Prince of Egypt is that in those stories, Moses is the hero. And in that way, the Ten Commandments, the movie, and the Prince of Egypt, the, the, the animated feature, both get Exodus wrong because Moses isn't the hero. God is the hero. God sees his people. God raises up Pharaoh for God's own purposes. God calls Moses as his servant. God sends the plagues on Egypt and rescues his people. God gives the law at Sinai. 
And it is God who resides among his people in the tabernacle. Every action taken by God in this book is ultimately pointing and leading to humanity's need for a savior who will free us not from the bondage of slavery to Egyptian taskmasters, taskmasters, but free us from the bondage of sin so that we can live in the liberty of righteousness. That's Exodus in a very small nutshell. Two major themes that we're going to trace through the course of our study tonight. The first is this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He rules over all. He reigns over all. He controls all things. There's nothing that surprises him. Second, God is present among his people. God is present among his people. And as we've been looking at the other books of the Bible we've covered so far, we've been trying to locate their position in the scope of broader redemption history. Uh, We saw that uh, Genesis covered creation and the fall. Uh, Last month we looked at Mark. We looked squarely at this aspect of redemption, of Christ coming to redeem his people. The book of Exodus is kind of a uh, kind of a strange character in that it sort of covers this this period between fall and redemption and also sort of redemption because it's a foreshadowing of the redemption we'll have in Christ. So with your magic mar- marker or your, your Crayola crayon or whatever it is that you're writing with tonight, your wife's lipstick because you forgot your pen, uh, draw a circle or make a square or something uh, around in your note guide, the, that arrow that is just to the left of the word redemption and redemption itself. So circle the arrow and the word redemption in one big circle, because Exodus kind of covers that time in between fall and redemption leading up to that and and foreshadows what Christ will do for us. As you read Exodus on your own this week, and I encourage you to do so, it'll take about two and a half, maybe three hours, uh, maybe longer if you're doing it before bed and you can't stay awake, that helps to understand what kind of book Exodus is. The genre of Exodus, the kind of literature that it is, like Genesis, is historical narrative. Uh, Some uh, scholars, commentators have coined it theological history. And I really like that term, theological history, because Exodus is telling a story, a history, but with a theological point, with a point about who God is. So reading Exodus then in your own time, you should center in on God's character and his work among his people Israel. God is their redeemer and the only hope for rescue. And in order to see these things better in the book of Exodus, as you read the book, ask yourself and try to answer these following questions, okay? What is the text telling me about God and his character? What is the text telling me about God and his character? Secondly, what is the text telling me about myself? Who am I? What does God say about who I am, my nature, my character? Thirdly, what does this text have to say about what I should know about or how I should respond to God? What does this text have to say about what I should know about or how I should respond to God. Having said that, now let's look at the course of Exodus. Exodus is a book about a people rescued, a people governed, and a people blessed. And we are going to cover that in, in three sort of major movements with a, uh, a, a, a brief sort of intermission or an interlude between the second and the third points, okay? So point number one, covering chapters 1 through 18 of Exodus, we see this, God rescues. God rescues. In the beginning of Exodus, the promise of Genesis is alive and well, but, but threatened. Okay? Remember the promise of Genesis, which is the, the promise of this serpent crusher, this seed of the woman that, cr- that would crush the head of the serpent. 
And, and that was a promise that we traced all through the course of Genesis. We saw how it was threatened by man's sin, but God continually was preserving it. Well, here in the beginning of Exodus, taking, taking up where Genesis left off, the promise is alive and well, but it's under threat. Exodus 1, verses 5 through 9 say this, All the descendants of Jacob, Jacob, remember he had his name changed to Israel, were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation... Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You'll recall the promise or the mandate from God to Adam and Eve, to the first man and woman in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the land and to subdue the earth. And here Israel, as a foreign people in Egypt, are being fruitful and increasing greatly and multiplying. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt, a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he came to his people, uh, behold, the people, uh, and he said to his people, excuse me, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. The, the foreigners are growing in number in Egypt. And as we all know, Hebrew boys will become Hebrew men and Hebrew men will become Hebrew soldiers. And in the event that they don't like what Egypt is doing, there will be a rebellion or so the Pharaoh thinks. And so what does he do? He institutes this edict that says every male child that is born of the Hebrews must be put to death. Right. The the Pharaoh is securing his legacy and his hold uh, as king in Egypt. And so he issues this edict. But by the grace of God, there are two women, Shifra and Pua, who are midwives uh, uh, among the Hebrews. These are women that help the ladies that are in labor and help them through the birthing process. And they do not listen to Pharaoh. They perform the first act of civil disobedience that we see in Scripture. Right? And they're a little bit less than honest with the king, with Pharaoh. I'll, I'll be honest about that, right? But what they're doing is they are protecting the lives of Hebrew boys. They're allowing the Hebrew boys to live. And when Pharaoh asks them what's going on, they say, well, these Hebrew women, they're just so, they're so just uh, uh, vigorous. They, have, you know, they give birth before we can even show up. And then the babies, I don't, we don't know what's going on, right? But so they are civilly disobedient to Pharaoh because what Pharaoh has required of them goes against what they know God desires. And God remembers the midwives, Scripture says, and that God honors them and blesses them. It's during this period, this edict, where all the baby boys are to be killed among the Hebrews, that this child is born named Moses. Well, he'll get that name later. To a Levite woman, and she hides him for three months. And after three months, she can't hide him anymore. We have three daughters, and I don't know how you hide a child for three months from anyone. They just scream and cry all the time. So, um, so Moses' mother was an amazing woman. But finally, when it's impossible to hide the baby any longer, she puts him in a basket made out of papyrus or made out of reeds and covered in, in tar and in pitch. And she sends him down the Nile River, which, by the way, is not like the lazy river that used to be at the beach water park here in Albuquerque, right? No, the Nile is a, is a real river, a serious river. It's the second longest river in in the world, second only to the Amazon, I, I believe. And if I'm wrong, you'll correct me later. Um, and it's not a gentle flowing river in all places. And so she takes this boy's life, not into her own hands, but, but places this boy's life into God's hands and trusts the sovereign God of the universe that he will care for this baby however he wills, however he desires. And it just so happens to be that in God's design, in God's plan, this basket carrying this baby would land and get stuck among the reeds outside of Pharaoh's own house. 
And his daughter finds the basket with the baby inside. And she calls him Moses because he was drawn up out of the water. And she takes him into her house and raises him uh, as her own. Now, as Moses grows grows older... We know that uh, he knows that he is not Egyptian. It's obvious he's not Egyptian. There are, there are ethnic differences between Egyptians uh, and, and, um, and Hebrews, and ones that are obvious. And so he knows that he is, has grown up as an adopted son of Pharaoh. And one day as he is out, he's 40 years old, he is out and surveying what's going on, the slavery in Egypt. He sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave. And out of passion and love for his own people, righteous indignation about what, what, what is going on, he picks up a rock and he kills that Egyptian. Now, that was sinful. It was wrong. Moses is now a murderer. And as a murderer, he becomes a wanted man by Pharaoh. And so he leaves. He flees Egypt to this place called Midian, place of the cousins of, uh, of Abraham, cousins of the, of the Hebrews. And it's while Moses is gone in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, that the hero enters the story. Remember, the hero is not Moses. The hero is God. And this is what Exodus 2, 23 through 25 say. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Catch this. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The hero is on the stage in Exodus, in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And then in chapters 3 and 4, as Moses is out in the wilderness, tending sheep of his father-in-law, in chapters 3 and 4, the Lord who is is revealed to Moses. There he reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush, a bush that is on fire but is not consumed by that fire. And in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, we see that it is the sovereign God of the universe who acts. He acts and acts on behalf of his people. Look at Exodus 3, verses 7 and following. Then the Lord said to Moses from the burning bush, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God is a God who acts in Exodus. God is a God who takes initiative to rescue his people in Exodus. And Moses, not knowing who this God is, asks, when I go to the people and say, God has sent me to you, what do I tell them that your name is? And so in Exodus 3, verses 14 and 15, we have this. God says to Moses, he answers his question, I am who I am. I am who I am. Verse 15, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God's name, I am who I am, is a play on the Hebrew verb meaning to be. That's why he can say I am. He doesn't have a name, he just, he is. He is, I am. This is who God is. Yahweh is the closest that we can get to his personal name in terms of pronunciation, is a God of the eternal present. He is without beginning or end. He is changeless and infinite and sovereign. 
He is the one who makes good out of evil. He is the one who hears and sees and knows his people. He is the one who has raised up Pharaoh that his own power and dominion over Pharaoh might be shown in contrast to this human king's limited defiance. That is who this God is. It is undoubtedly God who acts and who controls the situation. If you ever wondered who is sovereign, who is acting, who is doing what in the book of Exodus, I would call your attention to chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. The Lord said to Moses, this is toward the end of their interaction at the burning bush. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Here in these verses, a lot going on. But the mo- maybe the most important thing is that God is distinctly saying that he is in control. If ever you wondered about this interplay between God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart, who hardens whose heart and whose heart is hardened by whom? Right? God answers the question for us in chapter 4, verse 21. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Why? Why is God doing this? Well, because he has a purpose in mind. He has a plan in mind. He is going to demonstrate that he and he alone is God over all things, that he and he alone is sovereign. And he has raised up Pharaoh and allowed him to be in the position that he's in so that he can harden Pharaoh's heart and then prove himself more glorious than Pharaoh. The Lord in verses or chapters 5 through 15 is also the Lord who delivers. And so Moses and his brother Aaron uh, go back to Pharaoh and they begin this conversation with Pharaoh. And this leads us into the, the, the story of the ten plagues or the telling of the ten plagues that God brings upon Egypt as, as motivation, if you will, to let the people of Israel go. And in this process, the Lord is waging war on the gods of Egypt. God is not sending these plagues accidentally or, or ambiguously, right? God is doing something very specific in Egypt by sending these plagues. Look at these plagues. First, he turns the Nile to blood. Here he is showing that, that he, that Yahweh is sovereign over the lifeblood of Egypt. Now, Egypt had many, many gods in their uh, religious or in their, their theology. They're thinking about the universe. Gods for everything. Gods for the river. Gods for the earth. Gods for fertility. Goddesses for fertility. Uh, uh, gods and goddesses over all the different elements and all of those things. Gods and goddesses for everything. Much like uh, we would see, only maybe not to the, the extreme extent, that, uh, that Hinduism even today has a pantheon of over 300 million million gods. And so the first plague is turning the Nile into blood. The Nile was personified as as a god of sorts. And Yahweh is here showing that he is sovereign over the lifeblood of Egypt. Without the Nile, there is no Egypt. Without water in this desert, there is no city. There is no kingdom of Egypt. And so without the Nile, there is nothing. And Egypt is powerless. And God is saying, I'm powerful even over that. Secondly, there's an invasion of frogs. Yahweh here is showing that he is greater than the fertility goddesses of Egypt. There was a goddess named Hecate who is often depicted as a goddess with the head of a frog. And there's a couple frogs, you know, down by the riverbank. That's good. There's life in there. But when there's tons, thousands even of frogs and they're in your house, that's no longer a sign of fertility and a blessing, right? Now it's a nuisance. 
And it's Yahweh who has created this nuisance. Then the third plague, he turns dust into gnats, showing that he, that Yahweh alone, is greater than the gods of the land. Then he sends flies, showing that he alone is sovereign over the resurrection. There was an Egyptian god named Kefir, who is sometimes depicted as a, as a beetle or flying scarab. And some scholars think that the flies were, were, were scarabs, were these flying beetles. And that God was showing that he's even uh, Lord, he is sovereign over even the resurrection and the God of the resurrection a supposed God of resurrection. Fifth, God sends a plague upon the Egyptian livestock and they all die, showing that he alone is greater even than the fertility God of Apis, who is depicted as a bull. Interestingly enough, there is a tomb somewhere in Egypt that has, I think, half a dozen or more sarcophagi, uh, which is like a, you know, a, a box that holds a dead body with bulls inside that have been mummified. And these are bulls that are supposed to, to have uh, been thought to have been incarnations of the fertility God Apis. And God is saying, I'm, I am sovereign even over Apis. Apis ain't got nothing on me. Sixth, he sends boils on the people of Egypt. Notice that up to this point, all of the plagues have been uh, not so much um, uh, rendered against individuals, but against the land and against things. But now the plagues affect people. It boils on their skin, beginning with the magicians of of uh, Egypt. And here Yahweh is showing that he is Lord even over physical malady. Then he sends hail on the land, the greatest hailstorm, the most severe hailstorm that history has ever recorded, showing that he is the only God of the elements. In the eighth plague, he sends locusts, showing that he alone is Lord over all provision. There were gods for the crops and for life and for grain and for the fields and for protection against pests. And Yahweh is saying, I am sovereign over all. Then ninth, he sends darkness over the land for three days, showing that he alone is Lord even over the sun. The Egyptian god, Amun-Ra, was supposed to be the king of the gods. He was the sun god, and the sun god has been shut down for three days by the Lord. And then there's a break. And in chapter 12, we get instructions for what we know to be the Passover. And the Passover is God's warning to Israel of the 10th plague that is coming. Remember what God said in in Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, right? Uh, He says to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to let my firstborn son go that he may worship me. But if you don't let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. Well, it's come to that point where God is about to execute his judgment, even on the house of Pharaoh. And so God warns Pharaoh and the the Hebrews that there is a plague coming. And, And this plague is a personal plague. The angel of death himself is going to pass over Egypt and all the firstborn children of every house will die. This is going to be a tragic event in Egypt. But God has made provision for his people Israel not to be affected by this plague of death. And how is it that they're not affected? Well, they're to take a a spotless, unblemished lamb, a year old or less, to slaughter it, to take the blood of that lamb and to put it on the, the, the posts and the lintel of their doors so that that night when the angel of death passes over the land of Egypt, he would see the blood on the houses of the Hebrews and, and not visit death on those homes. And so it is that Passover becomes a reminder for generations of Hebrews, and even for us today, of the God who rescues his people, even from death. Exodus chapter 12, verses 11 through 13 say this. Uh, This is the Lord's Passover, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. and No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And then that night, the angel of death passes over. And the firstborn of all livestock and all human beings in the land of Israel that don't have the blood of the lamb on their door dies. And not even the house of Pharaoh escapes this plague. God has made good on his promise to kill the firstborn son of Pharaoh. And at that point, Pharaoh is broken. And he decides to let the people go. He decides to let the people go. There's a purpose to the plagues. These ten plagues that take place in Egypt. There's a purpose for Egypt and there's a purpose for uh, even Israel. And that purpose is that they may know that Yahweh is the Lord. This, this purpose comes up in several places throughout the course of the plagues. In chapter 7, verse 17, in 8.10, in 8.22, 9.14 and following, in 10.2, and in 11.9. Exodus chapter 9, verses 16 and 17 say this, But for this purpose I have raised you up, God is saying to Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why is God doing what He's doing? So that all the earth will know that He is the Lord. The purpose of the plagues is to show that Yahweh is sovereign over all things and that in that demonstration of His sovereignty, His true nature would be known by all who are witness to the plagues, both Egyptian and Hebrew. In in the plagues, all all of Egypt knows, Pharaoh included, that Yahweh is Lord of all even over Pharaoh's rise to power and even over the hardening of his heart, the Hebrews come to know that this sovereign Lord and no other is the one that has come to rescue them. Israel leaves Egypt and they make their way toward the Red Sea and is there at the Red Sea between not so much a rock and a hard place, but a, a, a lake and an Egyptian army where God's glorious presence is made manifest. There, in front of the Red Sea, the Lord appears and manifests glory to God and to protect His people. This is the point in which God comes and, and comes in a, a pillar of fire, right? Separating His people from the pursuing Egyptian army. The Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart in Exodus chapter 14 so that Pharaoh might pursue the Hebrews, so that God would defeat Pharaoh and, according to God, get glory over him. God wants to be glorified in the face of this obstinate man. And then, so the deliverance through the Red Sea, God commanding Moses to uh, place his staff in the waters and the waters parting and Israel crossing, going across on dry land. His deliverance through the Red Sea and his deliverance from Egypt caused Moses then to see in Exodus chapter 15, even as we sang earlier tonight. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is this God? He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. And then there's this sort of in-between period as they get to the other side of the Red Sea. They're delivered from Egypt. Egypt is no longer a problem for them in terms of an army that is pursuing them. And here in the desert, in the wilderness, we see the Lord providing for His people. The Lord provides. In chapter 15, He provides clean water where there was only dirty, brackish, bitter water. And there He reveals Himself as Yahweh, your healer. Then in chapter 16, where there is no food, He provides manna in the morning and quail at night that they might have bread and meat to eat, showing that He is Yahweh, your God. In chapter 17, He provides water where there was none, showing that He is Yahweh who is among His people. 
In chapter 17, Israel faces her first major battle after leaving Egypt against a far superior army in the Amalekites. And there, God provides victory over these non-Egyptian enemies. So much so that afterwards, uh, Moses exults saying, Yahweh is my banner. He is the one that goes before me into battle. And then in chapter 18, the Israelites make it to Midian and to uh, Jethro's territory. That's Moses' father-in-law. And there, uh, God provides wisdom to Moses, wisdom in leadership, because he is, even from the lips of Jethro, Yahweh, who is greater than all other gods. Church, make no mistake. God is the God who rescues. He is the God who redeems His people according to His purposes, that His glory might be shown. But God is not just a rescuing God, and He doesn't rescue just for the sake of rescue. He rescues that He might reign, that He might rule. And so God, in chapters 19 through 31, is a God who reigns. God reigns. Three months to the day after leaving Egypt, the Hebrews arrive at Sinai, at Mount Sinai. And big things are about to happen here. In chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, before God gives Moses the law, the the Ten Commandments and the case law that follows, He gives the foundation for who He is and why He can give these commandments. Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, You yourselves, the Lord says, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you out on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice in what God says here, the condition. If you will obey, then you shall be. You shall be a treasured possession. You shall be a kingdom of priests. You shall be a holy nation. Israel is about to be in a very important people if they will obey God. But let us remember why Israel is important. Israel is not important because they are Israel. Israel is important because they are the bearers of the seed of the serpent crusher. We said when we looked at Genesis that Israel is, Jesus is not important because he comes from Israel. Israel is important because Jesus will come from them. Right? And so that is why God has chosen them. That is why God has rescued them, that He might preserve His promise of a Savior through them. And that in their obedience to them, they might be a special kind of people reflecting God's character and His glory in the world around them. And so having heard this, the people ratify the terms of this covenant, even before the law comes. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, all the people answer together and say, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we know that this is going to turn out really good for them in a few chapters. Then Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments. Here in Exodus chapter 20, it is the Lord who gives these commands. And it is the Lord who has authority to give them. Exodus 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Therefore, be this kind of people is what he's about to say. And he gives them these Ten Commandments. Here they are in very brief fashion. Now let us see the Ten Commandments not as what they are for the people, but as what they say about who God is and his character. Because that's what the Ten Commandments are really all about. Israel is God's people, and they are God's people to reflect His glory and His character in the world. And so the things, the rules that He gives them to live by are not so much about them as they are about Him and His character. So, first, you shall have no other gods before Yahweh, to, such as to say Yahweh alone is God. Secondly, you shall have no idols or likenesses of Yahweh or of any other gods, because Yahweh alone is worthy of glory. Third, do not take Yahweh's name in vain. Do not bear His name falsely. Because Yahweh's reputation is attached to His people. Fourth, keep the Sabbath, because Yahweh is a working and a resting God. 
He works in creation, in the six days of creation, and rests on the seventh to rule over it. And so mankind are to work and to rest as well. Fifth, honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land because Yahweh is a generous God in his design of the family. And we do well to honor his design as he has given it to us. Sixth, do not murder because Yahweh values every human life. It is for him alone to give and to take life. Seventh, do not commit adultery because Yahweh is a faithful and a trustworthy God. His people must be faithful and trustworthy in all relationships, especially in marriage. Number eight, do not steal because Yahweh is the provider of all that you need. Number nine, do not bear false witness. Do not lie because Yahweh is truthful. There is no deceit in him and there must not be any deceit among his people. Tenth, do not covet another person's wife or property because it is Yahweh who sovereignly satisfies all of our desires. These are the people that Israel are supposed to be, are intended to be, because this is the kind of God that the Lord is. And then in chapters 20 through 23, we have an extended portion of law giving, which is called the case law. These are laws that apply the Ten Commandments to the everyday life of Israel. These are laws that take place in case something happens, okay? Verses, uh, chapter 21, verses 23 through 24, get to the heart of what the case law is really all about. It says, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, I don't think this is to be taken exactly literally as it is here, because it's not uh, applied exactly literally like this throughout the case law. This is a figurative, formulaic way of saying that the case law, the laws that God gives about day-to-day living as Israel, uh, laws regarding punishment and restitution, are to be consistent with the harm that is done. Right? Not all deaths are murderous deaths. Okay? So not everybody that kills somebody is deserving of, of uh, dying themselves. Right? In some cases, there's an accidental death. And in the case of an accident, you don't repay life for life. But there's a, there is restitution to be made. There's payment that is to be made to the family of the victim, even though it was an accident. And so this uh, phrasing, if there's harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, so on and so forth, is about punishment and restitution that is consistent with the harm done. And in this church, we see that God is a God of justice. God is a God who, who is about people living in a holy manner, even as he is holy, taking care of one another, seeing to it that when harm is done, that, it is, that, that there is recompense for that harm. And in Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, Moses comes down off the mountain. He gives the people the Ten Commandments and the case law, and they say, all the, the, words, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're going to do it. Twice they have said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Moses says, that's great. God's got more for me. I got to go back up to the mountain. I'll be back in a little while. So he goes back up to the mountain. And while he's up at the top of the mountain, he receives instructions for the building of the tabernacle in chapters 25 through 31. The tabernacle then, or the tent of meeting, is to be the place where God will manifest his presence in a physical manner for Israel. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God says, Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Yahweh desires to be among his people. He wants to be with his people. And so the instructions for the tabernacle or the tent of meeting that come next, they're not arbitrary, they're not accidental, they're not random. The instructions for building the tabernacle start with the most holy things and move outward to the less holy things. 
The Ark of the Covenant is the first thing that is described in the Holy of Holies, that most inner room of the tabernacle, then to the holy place, the outer room of the tabernacle, and then to the courtyard itself. Because God is holy, church, He must be approached as holy. He must be approached on His terms. Consider then how the construction of the tabernacle highlights God's holiness. First, you have the Holy of Holies, which contains the Ark of the, uh, the Covenant with a lid made of solid gold, guarded by cherubim on the top. These are not uh, sweet little babies with chubby cheeks, okay? Cherubim are ferocious creatures in the biblical world, in the biblical understanding. So when Isaiah says that he sees cherubim, you know, floating around the throne room of God, he doesn't see little fat babies that are, you know, uh, uh, with little diapers on and wings, whatever. No, what he sees are these creatures with bodies like lions, wings like eagles, and the faces of men, okay? These are not the kind of thing that you would want to play with or mess around with or come across in a dark alley. And these are what are guarding the, the, the top of the, of the ark, which is called the mercy seat. In the Holy of Holies, only the high priest of Israel can enter, and that only once a year. That's how holy this place is. Secondly, there's the holy place, which is the the outer room of the tabernacle. And it contains an altar of incense, table of showbread, a lampstand. All of these are overlaid with gold. The curtains themselves that that are... um, uh, separating the holy place from the most holy place, from the holy of holies, have images of, of uh, blossoms and plants sown in them. And, and the lampstands are made to look like a tree with branches. The imagery here is that of a garden. Entering into the tabernacle is like going back to the garden of Eden, where God is present with his people. Then there's the courtyard, which contains the bronze basin for uh, hand washing and a bronze altar for sacrifices. Even the metals that are used in construction become less pure or less valuable as you get to the less holy places. This is a place where the Hebrews can enter because it's there that they're going to offer sacrifices for their sins. And then we have description of the clothing of the priests. They're to wear a turban on which is a, a, a gold plate engraved with the words, Holy to the Lord. They wear an ephod, which is a a garment on which was affixed the breastplate with uh, 12 precious stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Their robe was hemmed with golden bells and pomegranates, and they were to wear an undergarment to cover their nakedness, the text says. Now, Hebrew people did not wear underwear, okay, in those days. They, you had a robe, and that's what you had, and it covered things, right? But the priests were so to be so holy, to be so set apart, that they would even put on extra clothes in the presence of God, that there might be no unholiness, there might be nothing unsafe, seemly among them as they serve God. These are the instructions that Moses receives while he's atop the mountain at Mount Sinai. This is how God is going to reign, how he is going to rule, how he is going to govern his people. But down on the bottom of the hill, down on the bottom of the mountain, in chapters 32 and 34, we have this sort of interlude of grave transgression. This will be an event that will mark Israel's history from this point forward. This is a watershed moment for them and not in a good way. While Moses delays on the mountain, he's up there for 40 days and for 40 nights, the crowd grows anxious. And they cry out to Moses saying, we don't know what's happened to, or they cry out to Aaron, excuse me. And they say, we don't know what's happened to this uh, Moses guy. We don't know when he's going to be back. Here's what we want you to do. Make for us a God that we can worship and we can pay homage to. And so Aaron does it. He collects all of their gold and he makes this golden calf. And the people begin worshiping this golden calf, expressly contradicting what they've said they would do in obeying the Ten Commandments in Exodus 24. Okay? And so while Moses is up on the mountain, the Lord comes to him. The Lord says to Moses in Exodus 32, verse 7, Go down, for your people have done this thing. 
And we enter into this conversation between God and Moses about who these sinners really belong to. Okay? In Exodus chapter 32, verse 7, the Lord says to Moses, The Lord says to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now, therefore, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them in verse 10, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God says, I'm starting over because these yahoos that you brought out of Egypt have done this thing. And Moses implores the Lord in verse 11. Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty deed. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them in the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord relents because there is an intercessor. The Lord relents bringing disaster upon his people because of a holy intercessor, because of one who is righteous. Now, not perfectly so, but one who who is more righteous than the people, imploring God's mercy. God relents from this disaster. We see in the great sin of these people that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. First, death. In Exodus 32, verses 25 through 29, Moses instructs all the Levites who are to be the priests, the priestly tribe of the people of Israel, all the men who are Levites to take up their swords and go to and fro throughout the camp, killing everybody that was involved in this idolatry. Brother, father, sister, mother, neighbor, friend, doesn't matter. If you're involved in this idolatry, you deserve to die. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. And we see those wages on display in Exodus chapter 32. This is the Levite's ordination into the priesthood, by the way. I'm so glad that we don't ordain people in the same manner now. Sin has consequences, namely death. Secondly, separation from God. Exodus 33, verse 3, God says, I will, he says he's going to take the people into the land that he's promised, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Verse 4 of chapter 33, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people, you are a stiff-necked people. The people mourn the fact that they are separated now from God. That God has said, I'm not going to go with you. Because of the sin, I'm not going with you. And the people are devastated. Rightly so, but still, sin has consequences, death and separation. And separation from God requires an intercessor. It requires someone to go in between, to plead our case before the Lord. And so Moses does that. Moses intercedes for the people. He pleads his own favor with the Lord. And he pleads God's sovereign choice of the people of Israel on their behalf. And so he says in chapter 33, verse 16, Is it not your going with us, Lord, that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? God, you can't turn away from us. You can't desert us. You can't leave us. You're the only thing that makes us different. So God responds favorably to Moses' intercession. And Moses says, Then, Lord, show me your glory. Right? Show me, give me a, a promise of your, your renewing of this covenant. And so God does. He reveals his glory to Moses and he renews the covenant with him. In chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, 
The Lord passes before Moses, shows him his glory, and proclaims. This is what God says about himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord. He's saying his personal name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Catch this, church. This is who God is. He desires to be known as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps this steadfast love for thousands. This is who God will be known as throughout the Old Testament, referred to over a dozen times, this very same formulation throughout the rest of the Old Testament Scripture, that this is who the God that Israel worships. And then he renews the covenant in verse 10 of chapter 34. He said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Moses leaving the presence of God is transformed after that. God's presence transforms Moses. This is to say that one cannot encounter God and not be changed by it. Exodus 34, verses 29 and 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Why? Because the holiness, the glory of the Lord was upon Moses' face because Moses had seen it. And God's holiness, God's sovereignty, God's... Uh, Very glory is a terrifying thing because it reveals to us our sinfulness. And so Moses' shining face becomes a reminder to the people of Israel for the rest of the time of their wandering until his death that he had to meet with God on the mountain to intercede for them because of their sin. But there's good news, good news in Exodus, and Exodus ends on a really good note because in chapters 35 through 40, we see God resides. God takes up residence among his people. In chapter 35, the construction of the tabernacle begins according to the command of the Lord. Chapter 39, verse 42 says this, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. God gives instructions for the building of the tabernacle in chapters 25 through and following. And then chapters 35 through 40, all the same instructions are followed almost word for word. Only instead of you shall do X, Y, Z, the text just says, and they did X, Y, Z in the same order, starting with the ark and moving all the way through to the courtyard. And once the tabernacle, once the tent of meeting is completed, Yahweh then takes up residence among his people. Chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is the cloud of God's presence that he's been leading the Israelites with by day. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This sovereign God, God who controls everything, who has demonstrated His power and His glory against the Egyptians for the fulfilling of His promise to His people, now resides among His people. But this is only a shadow of a more perfect presence that He is going to take among men in the man Jesus Christ. 
God's presence in the tabernacle is only a shadow of the glory, of the magnificence that will be the incarnation of Jesus, the very Son of God in flesh. So having said that, let's discover quickly Christ in Exodus. First, Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. Just as Yahweh calls Israel his firstborn son in chapter 4, verse 22, Christ is the Son. He's the only begotten of the Father. Israel can be called God's Son because in them is the seed of Christ, the serpent crusher. And Jesus, as the true Israel, fulfills the law. The law that God gave for his people to live by, Christ fulfills all of it. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus' Son, who is perfectly sinless, has fulfilled the covenant, fulfilled the law. Secondly, as the true Israel, He is perfectly obedient to God. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although Christ had every right to exercise his divinity in his human body, he chose not to. He chose to be obedient, even to the point of death, Philippians 2, 8 says. And Jesus, as the true Israel, makes believers, because of his holiness, he makes believers holy. His holiness makes us holy. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves become like living stones. Or, I'm sorry, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, familiar language, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ's holiness brings us into holiness. Jesus is the true Israel. Secondly, Jesus rescues us from a worse slavery. Romans chapter 6, 22 and 23 says this, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, servants of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Make no mistake, we are slaves to a worse taskmaster than Pharaoh in Exodus. We are are slaves to sin, and sin breeds death. But Christ has saved us from a worse taskmaster, a worse kind of slavery, even than that of Pharaoh in Exodus. Third, Jesus is the human presence of God among his people John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, And the Word, that is John's way of referring to Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what I love about what John is saying here, because that word that he uses, dwelt, that that Greek word for dwell, is the equivalent of the Hebrew word for tabernacle. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. In Christ, all the fullness of divinity dwells. He is the human presence of God among His people. Fourth and last, Jesus is our Passover Lamb. John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist says, 
or we, we read the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First Peter chapter one, verse 19, Peter says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, that is rescued from slavery to sin. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, Peter says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was a lamb without blemish or spot that was slaughtered and whose blood was spilled for the rescue of God's people during that tenth plague, that that plague of the death of the firstborn. And God in His wisdom has sent His Son Jesus to be that Lamb for us. So that on the day of judgment, when, when God reckons all things, consummates all things to Himself, that, that on that day when we deserve to die because of our sin, that we who are covered in the blood of the Lamb, in Christ's blood, by faith in Him alone, we might escape what we have coming to us. That we might not get what we deserve but rather that we would be recipients of God's grace, which he gives freely to each one who believes. And so church, it is that very thing that we celebrate tonight as we come together around the Lord's table. We eat this bread, we drink this cup to remember that it is Christ who is our Passover lamb, that it is Christ who died that we might be saved, that he gave his life that we might have eternal life. And we remember that as we take this.